Hi, friends, and welcome back to My Best Friend is a Therapist, a podcast all about relationships, identity, and being human. We are Sara and Nazneen, two systemic therapists, relationship advocates, and best friends. In today's episode, we will be tackling a very sensitive topic, how to navigate friendships during a social movement when some friends might have opposing views. So Sara, let's go ahead and jump right in. Yeah, so I think that the social movement has definitely led people to reflect on their values and their outlook on race and privilege, which has been an uncomfortable experience for many of us. Mm -hmm. For me personally, it's been uncomfortable. Now, as you and I are women of color, so we are extremely passionate about talking about diversity. And I mean, (laughs) we've talked about this in the majority of our Instagram posts. Every every single one. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) All of them. So... (laughs) So we were really excited this last week when we had some listeners of ours leave comments that were asking what what to do when there's a social movement happening and it's impacting friendships. And we got really excited about that because it gave us this perfect opportunity to talk about race. And so Naz, let's let's just like you said, let's just jump right in and mm-hmm. let's maybe read for our listeners one of the conversations that um, okay yeah we had with a listener okay. Here's what they said. I would love to hear perspectives on how you manage friendships with people you've now come to realize share very different moral, social, and political views than you, especially in our country's current climate. If it's someone you've been friends with for a long time, can this be saved by having open and honest conversations, or should you evolve to only surround yourself with those who support the same things as you? It's a really good question. That is a loaded question. <laughs> and I have to say, Sarah, I, before we kind of really get into our combo, I, I wanted to give our listeners some fair warning um, because I know you get really passionate <laughs> when you're talking about these topics. And, and so our listeners might be able to feel your energy throughout the episode. Um, and I think I said this the last episode too, like you're really great at sitting in uncomfortable places. And um, this conversation today, I, and actually any conversation about race is uncomfortable, right? Because it often turns into um, an argument between the sides. And instead of there being a dialogue, there's often a debate. Um, and so, and we've talked about how we are advocates for dialogue, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, thank you for <laughs> for warning our <laughs> listeners. I, I do get very passionate when I talk about this because – I am a woman of color and that's informed my entire life. And one thing that I do want to say before we get deeper into this conversation is that everyone's color, no matter whether it's white, brown, black, whatever, informs their identity. So what I'm saying is that even white people, their their race also informs their identity. At least I think it it should. And I was listening to this talk recently that said it said something really powerful that stuck with me. Um, it, the woman that was talking, she, she gave an example. She said, if I'm a white woman and I'm standing in a room full of black people, I'm thinking about my race. Mm. And so I think, that in a, I, I think that it's important to acknowledge that race is a part of everyone's identity. And I think that's why actually this conversation about race, like you said, becomes such a debate 
because it's so personal for people, mm-hmm. no matter what color they are. So people become reactive. Yeah. And I think, right, it's personal because you're talking about experiences that we've all had because of the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, of course, people are going to easily jump into debate rather than a dialogue. For sure. Um, and Naz, you and I often talk about how our training as therapists has helped us navigate in these personal identities of being brown and being Muslim and being women, you know, the training that we've spent nine years (laughs) in pursuit of, but it's taught us so much about how to put aside our own beliefs and hold space for other Mm -hmm. people who are different than us. Well, Sarah, Sarah, let's play therapy for a second. Just kind of roll with it if you're cool with that. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm going to be your client real quick and (laughs) I'm going to walk into your office. Okay. So I've walked into your office and, um, I see that you're wearing a shirt, um, and your shirt says inshallah. Um, and you and I know what that means, but I'll clarify real quick. So inshallah means, um, God willing in Arabic. And it's, it's an Islamic word that you use often daily. Right. Um, and so, sorry, I've, I've walked into your office. I see that you're wearing this shirt that says, inshallah. And the first question I ask you is, oh, you're Muslim? What, what do you do in this situation? <laughs> I quickly put a sweater on. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Stop for a little while. No. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. No, Naz, I might say something like, Naz, I'm wondering for you, what makes you curious about my religious stance? Would it make a difference for you as my client if I was a Muslim? Mm, Exactly. I mean, what you're talking about is in your response to this client who clearly has some sort of disagreement with an identity of a Muslim person, right? You're not letting your identity of being Muslim interrupt getting to know this client and, and being curious about his beliefs or her beliefs. Um, because you're staying in a, a place of curiosity. Yeah, because as a therapist, we've been trained to navigate. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, we we know yeah. how to put aside, like you said, we, we put aside our own beliefs. We create a space for understanding. We humble ourselves. We take a non-judgmental stance. We know all these things because our code of ethics mm-hmm. tells us that mm-hmm. that's what we're supposed okay. to do. Um, but can I challenge you for a second? Oh, <laughs> Is okay. that okay? <laughs> I mean, think about our listeners, right? Not all of them are therapists, and they haven't all gone to school for nine years and gotten this training the past five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, what you're speaking to is true. We know that we're not supposed to let our personal positions overshadow a client. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that our education has really been a privilege. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about humans essentially is what you're asking. So mm-hmm. why, you know, what do you do as a human when you haven't had this, this extensive clinical training? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like what do, what about people who haven't gone to school for this? Right. And sorry, I know for us, we talk about how part of the human experience is shifted and shaped by being therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about, in personal relationships and not necessarily specific therapist and client relationships. How do we talk about race without getting reactive, you know, based on, on the experiences we have of being colored in Mm -hmm. our personal relationships? Okay. I get what you're saying. Uh So the therapist me and the human me, we both want to, we both want to ask, why can't we do this? (laughs) 
Like, mm. why can't we humble ourselves? Why can't we take a non-judgmental stance? Why can't we listen? Why can't we just stay curious? Because that's how we learn. That's how we grow. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, look. If a client comes to therapy, it's likely because they're having issues in their life or in their relationships. And as a therapist, I help people unpack these issues, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. I can tell you have a lot more to say. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I just believe that people have so much potential for growth and positive change, but that potential really has to start with Mm self-acceptance. And so, yeah, these clients that I'm talking about that might walk into my office because there's issues in their life or their relationships, they need to feel that they're coming in and they have a therapist who's accepting them right now. Because I think that when you feel that that sense of acceptance, Mm -hmm. that helps you feel safe enough to move forward and to fully and truly be able to work on a better version of yourself. Mm -hmm. But you have to feel accepted. You have to walk in and put it all out there and say, here I am, flaws and all, and know that that person isn't going to judge you or shame you Mm -hmm. for where you're at right now. Yeah, 100%. Um, And I can tell that like this is an experience that you've reflected on a lot So could you just say a little bit more? Because we've had conversations. So I know what's happening in your brain, (laughs) but our listeners don't know, right? So let's share a little bit more. Yeah, I think that the reason – because what I'm explaining essentially is not easy to do. And I think the reason that I've been able to grow so much in the last four years of my adult life is because I have come to encounter so many people from all different walks of life. So that in and of itself has challenged me to humble myself, listen, and learn. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the reason – that I've been so willing to do that. Like I said, it's not easy to do that. But the reason I've been so willing to do that is because if I can do this, then then I can be a better therapist. It helps me become the best possible therapist that I can be, which means that I get to help more people. So essentially what I am trying to say is I think that being a better therapist makes me a better human and being a better human makes me mm. a better therapist. Hmm. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. <laughs> you need to coin that. Um, that was really beautiful. Sorry. I mean, being a better therapist helps me make myself a better human and being a better human makes myself a better therapist. And that couldn't be any more true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's put those, let's put that on shirts. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we'll wear them every time we record. <laughs> Um, but no, seriously, I mean, thank you for sharing that. And I mean, you're talking about a process of challenging yourself in order to face this potential for growth. And I feel like as humans, myself included, we really could all be better at that. Um, and, and what you're saying is not easy to do. (laughs) No, of course not. It takes hard work and it takes intention. I mean, that was really real for me. I, as many times as I noticed that I said the word grow I said the word challenge like it's Mm -hmm. not easy we Mm -hmm. talked about in our last episode how hard change is and as somebody who sits here and asks myself through this conversation that we're having right now how can I be a better human Mm -hmm. well Sarah (laughs) isn't that what we're doing right here like right now in this conversation we're we're just we're trying to all do better yes (laughs) yes <laughs> That's the sorority in me. <laughs> You're so cute. 
I want to bring up another point here, though. Okay. Um, one that you and I have spoken to so much since this social movement has begun. Oh. Okay, I think I know where you're. I think I know where you're going with this. Okay, um, where am I going with this, Naz? Oh, okay. Ooh, <laughs> I hope I'm right. Um, okay, so so in our conversations, one thing that I've picked up is really this question that we've come across um, about like how how do we as therapists advocate for minority populations when we ourselves have to be careful about maintaining and upholding like a neutral and non-judgmental and equally fair stance um, because as therapists, yeah, it is our ethical obligation to hold space for all clients, right? Even the ones we don't agree with. Is that kind of what you were thinking of? We really are best uh, friends. That's exactly <laughs> where I was going with that. Great. <laughs> Glad I was right. <laughs> um, as somebody who's an invisible minority, I hold a really unique position, um, not just with clients, but in life. Um, um, sorry, wait for one sec. Um, I really love that you're bringing that into the conversation, but mm-hmm. can you just give a, like a quick definition on invisible minority? Yeah. So I'm Egyptian. My Baba is an immigrant, um, but my mom is American. And so call it genetics, but, um, I took after my mom in regards to skin tone. And because I was born in the U S despite being bilingual, I don't have an Arabic accent when I speak English. So unless you know me personally, you really don't know that I'm a minority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So essentially what I'm saying is that if I had a nickel for every time somebody told me you look like a white girl, which, yeah, I am, but I'm also brown. <laughs> <Sarah>. <laughs> this reminds me of Mean Girls. It's like that. It's like what I think Karen says, like, if oh, you're Karen. from Africa, then why are you white? <laughs> <laughs> nah, is it? Right? Had a nickel. I'm not kidding. If I had a nickel for every time somebody said something like that to me, I wouldn't have any college debt. (laughs) I would like that. No college debt? No, it would be so nice. (laughs) But it also sucks because I oftentimes don't get recognition for this really big part of my identity. Mm -hmm. But that aside, I I acknowledge that that being an invisible minority comes with a, a lot of privilege. And so... Basically, to give you guys all a simple definition of what an invisible minority is, it's, it's someone who is not an obvious part of a minority group. Mm-hmm. And so as an invisible minority, I hold a really unique position, one that allows me to navigate a little bit differently in, in the room with, with clients, but also in life. When I, when I encounter a client who has a particular view about a person of color, let's just say a negative view, mm-hmm. um, someone who doesn't believe in equal rights for all humans – when they walk into my office, they feel comfortable expressing to me those real opinions about people of color because they just assume I'm white and hmm. there's no threat, right? Yeah. So if I'm a racist, <laughs> if I'm racist, would I first choose a black therapist? Probably not. No. no. And and two, do you think that if I if I was racist, I did have a black therapist that I would show up to therapy and I would talk to my black therapist about how much I dislike black people. No, no. I mean, I hope to God you would not do that. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that, yeah, I am an advocate for human rights and minorities and people of color, but because I am so uniquely positioned in that I am an invisible minority, one way that I can actually advocate for these populations is by holding space for clients who don't yet believe 
that all humans deserve equal rights. Mm -hmm. If I can help reframe these particular individuals' thoughts and beliefs in a space that's non-threatening because they don't see my color and they can express things openly and honestly, then I can actually help create better change, right? Like I can sit in a place of okay, I'm going to have compassion for you. I don't have to agree with you, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to let you know that because I want you as a client to be able to come into therapy and talk about things that maybe you want to work on this. I mean, I believe that people truly have so much potential for goodness. And I mm-hmm. think that when you're coming to therapy, you don't talk about the things that are rainbows and sunshine in your life. If I'm a client, I'm coming to therapy and I'm talking about how I have negative views towards people of color. I think that that's my way of saying I'm trying to do better. And if I'm a therapist and I'm a woman of color, but I'm an invisible minority, I have two options. I could either say, get the hell out of my office. You're disgusting. How could you be a racist? I would never work with someone like you. Or I could sit there and I could say, okay, I'm invisible. Mm -hmm. I'm safe right now. This person right now that doesn't like people of color, they don't see my color. I'm safe. I'm feeling triggered, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to work through that. I'm going to push through that. I'm going to stay uncomfortable because if I can stay uncomfortable with this person, I uniquely get to to help this person maybe reframe some of these negative thoughts Mm -hmm. in a way that's not threatening to them. And if I can do that, I think that I've done a better job as a therapist and advocate than I ever could. Yeah. Well, I mean, sorry, what you're talking about is not an easy thing to do. And I think that's why I, I want to keep reminding listeners that you're really great at sitting in these uncomfortable places. Um, and one message that I've seen a lot since this movement began was like, if you're silent, then you're part of the problem, which sorry, <laughs> that, that message for me is so irritating. Oh my God. Um, and, and let me clarify, you and I have not publicly made a statement about where we stand on the movement, but it's like interesting because what you're describing is so much more freaking difficult than posting on Instagram. You're talking about sitting with a client who has a really opposing view than you and specifically about race, which you have the privilege of not showing your skin tone or your Mm -hmm. race. Yeah. And you're sitting there with this client who's probably talking about all of these racist views and, and triggering you, like you said, yet you're putting that aside because you have the privilege to do so. And you're doing that to help create change for this person. Yeah. Now it's because I believe that like I said earlier, when you, when people feel accepted, that's really what gives people the courage to evolve and grow and become better people. So as a therapist and as a woman of color, I choose to show up every day to work, to life, ready to hold space for people, anyone, anyone, so that they can explore their fears and their biases because I'd rather be uncomfortable if it means that I get to do the best possible job that I can for people who don't have the privilege. They don't have that ability to say, I'm going to be invisible today. My minority identity is going to be invisible today. Wow. 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 That is really powerful. I'm sweating. <sighs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Um, and I think everything that you're saying right now is bringing something, something up for me and it's really pushing me to think about my own privilege. Um, yeah, I have dark skin. You guys know this. I'm brown. I'm Indian. But um, so that's not something that's invisible. That's something that is clearly visible. You can see the color of my skin. Um, but I also have an identity. I carry an identity that I have a lot of privilege in hiding. 
Um, and, and I think that this particular identity has really throughout my life. And especially after in 2001, after nine 11, like I think everything really shifted even further for me of feeling segregated in this identity in America. Um, but I have the privilege of hiding that I'm Muslim. You don't look at me and, and think I'm a Muslim woman. I don't wear a hijab. I wear short shorts. I, you know, I talk so un-Muslim and, and that's a privilege for me because I get to hide it. And I think part in, in, in my reflection on all of this and what we're saying right now, like part of what's happening for me is I'm recognizing that my empathy for black people is, it, it's, it's coming from a place of, of really being privileged enough to say I can hide a piece of my identity that may may encourage racist comments or negative feeling towards Muslim people, right? Um, but Black people don't get to do that. They, they don't get to hide their skin color. Um, they don't get to choose to be invisible. Yeah. Right? I can tell you feel really uncomfortable. I do. Saying that out loud. I do. Ness, I think what you're, what you're speaking to is I that do. you've got – a multifaceted identity. You've got brown skin. That part is visible. But the part of your identity that you've felt most segregated about is not your Indian identity. It's your Muslim mm-hmm. identity. And that's yeah. the part of your identity that you're able to be invisible with. Mm-hmm. And I think just hearing you say that, I appreciate you being uncomfortable, having the willingness to be uncomfortable and say that. Because I could tell that yeah. was really hard for you <laughs> to say. But it's humbling. It's humbling for me to sit here and hear you do that and see you kind of struggle to put those words together because you're talking about your privilege and that's humbling. It's humbling to hear somebody acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And and it's humbling because I know it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I respect you for saying it. I think that yeah. – I mean, I'm, <laughs> you guys, I'm literally <laughs> sitting here and I'm sweating because <laughs> these are things that aren't comfortable and <laughs> – it's taken me personally a long time to feel brave enough to say these things out loud. And I mean, I just think two years ago in my master's class, in my diversity class in my master's, I wasn't able to even formulate a sentence about my Muslim identity or my brown identity without crying. Like I couldn't even form a sentence mm-hmm. because it was such a fearful experience for me to talk about this. And And so I hope that everybody right now, just as Naz, you and I are sitting here and we're, we're uncomfortable and we're talking about things that make us kind of question ourselves that I feel like I I hope that everybody right now is feeling uncomfortable. Um, But I also hope that people are feeling inspired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, you and I have this conversation like so often, probably like (laughs) daily or something. And I think every single time I come out of it feeling way more inspired, like every Every single time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've i had this conversation with you now so many times because you've always been somebody who's held space for me to do so. Having this conversation over and over and over again with you has helped me find that courage I'm talking about, that courage that I didn't used to have even just two years ago. Because it is uncomfortable when you are someone who is colored but also has this alternative experience that is so privileged. Mm-hmm. And so, Naz, you've helped me feel more courageous every time we've talked about this 
-hmm. this topic. Yeah. So guys, (laughs) get yourself a best friend like Nazani (laughs) Nazami who makes you feel accepted and loved Mm. and powerful. (laughs) You is kind. You is smart. You is important. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (sighs) Sarah. Let's let's shift the conversation a bit before we start crying, <laughs> and um, let's segue back um, and apply what we're describing as our experiences as therapists and women of color, um, and let's bring back what our listeners are struggling with. Right? Let's start. Let's start talking about friendships again. Yes. So, just to kind of recap, our listeners asked, "How do you manage friendships when your beliefs?" And their beliefs do not do not align. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if we open this up a little bit more, this movement has not just affected friendships, but it's affected family relationships. It's affected a lot, like any relationship really mm-hmm. with anyone who has an opposing view as you. Yeah, I mean, the listener really brings up an important question across all relationships, right? How do you navigate relationships when your values and their values and beliefs clearly are opposing? I almost want to rephrase this question okay okay what makes it so difficult for us to feel comfortable in relationships when our values don't align especially in those relationships closest to us and if this is the case for many of us why don't we first go through an interview process before (laughs) committing to years of friendship (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) i'm serious i'm serious naz like I know it sounds like it should be sarcastic, but it's real. Do we not go through this process when we are choosing a romantic partner? We take the time to ask the person that we're dating Mm -hmm. things like, what are your morals? What are your beliefs? What are your values? Your political views, if that matters to you, religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're developing a friendship and you meet a, a potential friend, you don't pause and go through an interview like, hey, Naz. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in racial equality? Oh, you do? We can be friends now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Sorry, you're right. I mean, what you're saying is is really true. I mean, Naz, for us, I probably learned your shoe size before I learned your (laughs) political beliefs. Well, that has nothing to do with the fact that we were at Nordstrom Rack every week for a year. (laughs) (laughs) No, but also... Just up until now, we weren't really going to rallies together discussing what brands support equality and human rights. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, when you think about how we met and became friends, it was because we had so many other things in common beyond politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Naz, before the political movement started, how often did you ask yourself the question that our listeners are now asking us? Were you spending time and energy thinking about which friends disagreed with your political views, which people you have in your life that might be racist? No. 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 Why not? Why not, Naz? Why have you not? <laughs> you haven't because your your face says it all. <laughs> your face is saying it. Because like I said, friends don't interview each other, at least not about the hard shit. We don't spend time in our friendships having these uncomfortable conversations because as most humans do, we avoid conflict. And the issue here is we don't bring up human rights on easy days. We don't sit by the pool on a warm summer day and think, hmm, let's talk about racism. 
No. We bring these conversations up in the middle of a social movement. Mm-hmm. One that started because something horrific happened. So no shit. We are going to get reactive. Emotions are going to be high. People are going to get in debates. This is going to affect relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I, I told you guys. Sarah gets really passionate about this topic. <laughs> But seriously, I mean, essentially what I just heard you say, Sarah, is we could have all been doing better before George Floyd was killed, right? Better in our friendships, at having uncomfortable conversations about the things that this movement has shaken us to remember that are really goddamn important to us, as they should be. Was I too aggressive? No. Just now? No. <laughs> no, I think it was real. And I think it's true. I mean, so like where, where my mind is going right now is... Like what ends up happening is you become friends with people based on all these other factors. But yeah, what what do you do now that there's this social movement happening and all of a sudden you're realizing that your friends' views are really different than yours? And and what do you do if they're completely opposite? Well, I'm sure for many people, you don't want to see years of friendship abruptly end over a disagreement. But on the other side of that coin is that guilt. And I think what that guilt says is how can you stay friends with someone who doesn't stand for equal rights? It's almost become a moral issue staying friends with someone you truly believe stands for things that go against your reality of right. Well, I mean, think about the weight of political views right now. Like your political views used to be invisible, right? And and if we look back at history, political views were never tied to your identity as a human. Um, but somewhere along the way, somewhere in history, we as a society have gravitated towards connecting political views to our human identities. Yeah. Now politics include things like sexuality, gender, religion, even, and all of those things are a part of your identity for sure. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You're right, Naz. I think that it's because things that relate to our morals and our beliefs have now come into politics more than ever before. So politics over the years have have now kind of become this hub for identity. I mean, consider dating apps, for example. Like there are dating apps and dating websites that ask you to share what your political stance is because it's that important to people. Mm-hmm. And that didn't used to be a thing years back. Like you didn't think to ask people what their political view was and when you were trying to find a compatible partner. And when we are talking about things that are so important to people, politics now included, because it's a part of identity, of course relationships are gonna be are going to be impacted when people don't share the same views. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean again, Sarah, this is another reason why this conversation is so personal, right? Like, because you have race and race is personal and race can also be political, right? So it gets messy. It gets, yeah, it gets messy for sure. So those of you out there that are struggling with how the social movement has impacted your friendships, it's okay. It's normal. This shit is complicated. (laughs) Complicated is definitely an understatement, (laughs) Sarah. (laughs) So I'm sure at this point, our listeners are wondering, we haven't really answered our listeners question, Mm -hmm. right? Do we, do we cut people off who share our different views Um, so that we can continue to evolve. Um, And they're going to hate that we're saying this, but as therapists, we do not give advice, right? Instead, (laughs) we we listen, we reflect, we pose a lot more questions for the clients to do the work. 
Um, so I guess here we are um, asking you all to do some work with yourself and to think about some of the things that we've addressed in today's episode. How does it sit with you? Um, how might you become more comfortable sitting with others' perspectives that differ from yours? Could you engage in more dialogue rather than debate? And I know sitting with these questions is difficult. And so maybe, Sara, could I, could I ask you to maybe speak to how you've processed some of the questions I just asked? I think for me, my mind goes back to I am unique. I have grown up in the U.S. the majority of my life. My skin is white, but I have a father who's an immigrant. He's a visible minority. Mm-hmm. He has dark skin. He has a thick Egyptian accent. It's the cutest thing in the world. <laughs> he is really the cutest. <laughs> <laughs> but growing up in a different contextual environment than Baba, of course we have different views on the world, yet I respect him because I know that while I am unique, so is he. And being one of five children in my family, I've seen that some of my siblings have had a difficult time seeing eye to eye with my dad. And these differences have caused distance in the relationship. And right now, I'm thinking of a question that another one of our listeners had brought up. She asked, how do I process the loss of some relationships while still feeling proud of the work I have done on myself? She, she said, how do we balance the fear of losing friendships while still feeling confident in our own journey towards advocating for others. Mm. So here I am sitting with this question and reflecting, like Naz said, we listen, we reflect, we ask more questions. And I can validate that while we grow up and we evolve along the way, we may drift away from some of our loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I know this has happened for some of my siblings in their relationship with my dad. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is for each person, their answer might be different, right? For sure. Depends on the length of the friendship or the relationship, the quality of the friendship or the relationship. And, and I know for, for you, Sarah, because I'm your best friend and, and that we talk about this quite often, right? Your dad is your favorite human in the world. Um, and so, disagreeing with him on a social or political view isn't going to necessarily derail your relationship with him. No, exactly. My Baba is my favorite human in the world. So while I might not always agree with him and his very traditional views, I respect him and our differences because he comes from a different walk of life than I do. And I continue to be willing to learn from him because I love him and I value him. And I really, I value his uniqueness. Mm -hmm. But I know for you, Naz, that you have had some friends in the past that have expressed racist views. And for you, you've distanced yourself from those individuals, yeah? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, a few years ago, I struggled with a similar experience that our listeners shared. Um, I had a a really good friend who I know to be a good person, um, yet I felt conflicted on remaining friends with him um, because he was clearly violating my values by making some racist comments. And although these comments were never directed towards me, they were directed towards other people of color, disenfranchised communities or minority populations. And so I really had to process whether our friendship, one that was filled with love and a lot of support, uh, but if that friendship was contradicting my identity as an advocate for diversity. Um, and yeah, I think, sorry, in that process, I, I did just like, I, I distanced myself. 
Yeah. Naz, to kind of maybe put you in the hot seat for a minute, I, okay. I'm wondering if I can ask you a question that one of our listeners asked us. So how did you process this loss? Our listener posed the question in two folds, right? The first was, how do you process the loss of a friendship? And then secondly, how do you feel good about honoring your own work? And I think when our listener said work, she was speaking to the work that she has maybe done um, in understanding equality and become becoming more comfortable in advocacy. So again, how did you, Naz, process that loss of a friendship? Well... I think I'm still processing, um, but it definitely was a loss. Um, this is someone I was friends with for many years. And and when you ask me that question, I kind of go back to something we talked about earlier. Um, and sorry, I think you actually, you, get, you said something that gave me goosebumps um, and you were using that experiential therapist tone of voice <laughs> um, about the guilt, right? And you, you said that the guilt asks, how can I stay friends with someone that doesn't stand for equal rights? And that was the guilt that I faced. Um, and that was what guided me. That guilt guided me to my decision of distancing myself from this particular friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, I really, I struggled to do both. Like I struggled to value my own beliefs and my fight for equality while still maintaining a friendship with someone or, or with people who may not have been growing in the same direction as me. And and I had to ask myself that, right? So, Sarah, you look like you're about to say something therapist-y. I mean, I am. Oh, God. (laughs) So right now, Naz, I'm I'm imagining you and this friend. You both are running a three-legged race. And you two fall. And from what you're describing, you've fallen, but you can't seem to figure out a way to get back up again. You've struggled to find a balance between yourself and your connection to this person. And maybe you feel like in order for you to honor yourself, you have to let go of this connection with this person and finish that race on your own. That's um, it's really emotional for me because what you've just described, well, it kind of sounds like I was defeated and it kind of sounds like me and this friend were defeated. Um, but Sarah, one thing that's also coming up for me right now is like now that you've kind of forced me to sit in these goddamn feels, like I really, <laughs> and I get uncomfortable, right? And being vulnerable, that's so hard for me. And especially on a podcast where like, I can't, <laughs> nothing, everything's out there now, right? Um, but, but I think what's coming up for me is like, when I decided to cut off my connection with this person, it felt like I left him behind. And, and part of me, part of me feels passionately about advocacy, right? And that piece of me really, really wishes I could have helped my my friend and myself make it to the finish line together. I, I, I wish we could have grown together. Naz, I love that. 
I mean, I can, I again can tell that you are uncomfortable right yeah. now. Um, it's like you had to come up for air and laugh and make a joke and say, oh, we're on a podcast and my mm. shit's being well, that's put out thing. there for everyone. Right? Laugh when you're uncomfortable. <laughs> make a it's joke. Okay. It's okay to come up for air and to, to break that emotional process if you're not ready to get that deep, but that's okay. Um, but can I validate you for a minute? Oh, gosh. Can you bring you back you're into your You're not done. <laughs> you're really giving them a sneak peek to therapy. We're role-playing <laughs> in real life. Naz. Okay. Nazneen. Mm-hmm. You said just a few minutes ago, you said grow in a different direction. You and this friend, you two grew in a different direction. And that's okay. It's okay to feel a sense of loss. It's okay to also feel maybe proud of yourself for getting back up and for continuing this journey on your own. The thing that I think is important, and maybe you missed this, Naz, but you sitting here right now asking yourself these difficult questions of what if we had been able to finish the race together? What if we had stayed friends or I didn't leave him behind? That's the, that's the very definition of hard work. Hard work. Aww. Yeah, and as you know, the work you do from your heart, the work that challenges you to expand and grow and <laughs> love a little bit better. Oh, man, Sarah. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. Love yourself <laughs> and others more deeply. <laughs> In the feels. <laughs> In the feels. I can tell that you are processing your feelings right now. Yeah. And while you do that, I just want to – I just want to say thank you because I know that this was uncomfortable for you and I know I kind of put you in the hot spot um, and I asked you to process some things that were really vulnerable and really real for you. And I think listeners who are hearing this right now appreciate you. I appreciate you because not only have you had the courage to share and process your challenges, but because you are speaking to something that other listeners are also sitting with right now mm-hmm. in their own relationships. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I want to remind myself, and maybe if others need this reminder too, is that we are all growing in different directions because we are unique, every single one of us. And we all come from different backgrounds. So as I was kind of talking about Baba earlier, like him and I, we come from different backgrounds, which means that we are all starting at a different growth Mm -hmm. baseline. So yeah, our our process is going to look different. Yeah. Yeah, I personally appreciate that reminder. Um, and I think as I continue to grow in whatever direction that's going to be, um, I'm, I'm going to try to keep reflecting on everything that we've, we've said in the last, like, I don't know, 30 minutes. And, and I actually really hope listeners do too. Um, and maybe, maybe I should speak a little bit more directly for a minute. Um, I think that our hope for you all, friends, is that those of you listening to this conversation between, yeah, two best friends who happen to be therapists, um, we hope that you feel inspired. Um, and we hope that you become a little bit more willing to sit in uncomfortable conversations with, with loved ones and, and challenge yourselves and grow. Um, and, and also (laughs) I'm going (laughs) to plug a little Instagram here. Um, you know, we, we encourage you to drop some comments, DM us, and continue these conversations. Let us know what came up for you today. 
um, because we would really, really love to hold space for you and your uniqueness um, because you'll help us all grow, right? Yeah. I feel like I grew just from this conversation today. You know, Naz, because I have opened up a lot about this mm-hmm. to you and just our two years of friendship, but these conversations are really difficult for me because I carry a lot of shame in that I feel I feel like <laughs> yeah. I am a minority, and I know that. I know that I'm a minority, but my my skin is white, and so I talk about race, and I feel like very privileged. Uh, okay, but hold on, Sarah. Hold on. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Sorry, <laughs> you are somebody who holds more space for minorities, for people of color, for disenfranchised communities, more than any other person I know. And that's that's not just talking clinical work. That's you as a human. And yeah, I I may have asked you some difficult questions that you may not have had the answer to. But what that tells me is that you're processing. Um, and so I I really appreciate you acknowledging your privilege, but do you also not see how you've used your position of privilege and really converted it into your passion and power and that you're so good at holding space for these uncomfortable conversations? Right? Do you see that? Damn. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sweating again. <laughs> that was really validating. I appreciate that. I mean, Thank I you. am a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you're also just a great human and my best friend. So you just know all the feels. <laughs> Lots of feels today. Lots of them. <laughs> all right, friends, we're going to go hug again Ooh. because that was some really tough shit. And uh, I can use a hug. Yeah? yeah? Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's hug it out. We'll talk to you soon, friends. Bye. Damn it, Sarah. Did you, are you trying to make me cry? Do you need a tissue? <laughs> yeah, I could use one. Thank you. <laughs>